According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, join me in uh, the Gospels. As we did last week, we're going to be in Matthew, Mark, and Luke once again today. Uh, Although we can pretty much use, let's use Luke as a base text. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. And when we need to pick up the additional details out of Matthew and Mark, we can do that. Matthew, of course, we want to make use of because it's the text that includes the term crucifixion. And uh, the first reference to crucifixion, actually, that we have. Christ had spoken a number of times that they were going to put him to death, uh, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, and that he was going to raise again. But in Matthew chapter 20, we have the first reference to the actual mechanism, the methodology of crucifixion that would be employed in his, uh, in his physical death. All right, Luke eighteen thirty one. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. It seems simple, don't you think? I mean, how, how complicated uh, do you want to try to make it? But the disciples understood none of these things. And we're going to have to deal with that. We'll explore it a little bit today. Um, How could they be so blind? How could they not know what he's talking about? How many times has he told them this? And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. Okay, who did that? And why? And why does the Father not just grant us maximum knowledge every time we want to know something? Why are certain things withheld or retarded or slowed down or or reserved until subsequent stages of our growth or subsequent testing calls upon us to have such things? We uh, we have to deal, I think, at some length with verse 34. uh, Who is the subject of the verb when it says the meaning of the statement was hidden from them and uh, how Was that the devil who just hides stuff? Or was it God who, in his sovereignty, reserves a certain understanding for certain occasions, for certain times? And uh, we are uh, recognizing that the Word of God is learned line upon line, precept upon precept, and that some things cannot be learned until other things are learned first. And that's uh, part of the Father's good wisdom to to teach us in in these things. So we'll have some comment on that as well. All right. Uh, Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege we have one more time to assemble together. This could be our final time, Father. If today is the day the trumpet sounds, then... This is our final opportunity to study, to show ourselves approved. We ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for humility. Father, uh, clear away anything out of our thinking that would distract or detract from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Father, take every thought captive in obedience. Uh, Open the eyes of our understanding. Give us the ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. As I say, we got a pretty good jump on this last week and covered quite a bit. As far as it goes, the first three points of study, and we had some subpoints there. Uh, so let's just real quickly run through them again and, and uh, pick up where we left off. First of all, the context. This is on his way to Jerusalem. On his way, but he's been on his way for some time. And this has been a series of messages starting way back in chapter 9, Luke 9, verses 51 and 53. Uh, Luke 13, 22. It's going to come, uh, Luke 17, 11. We have it here in Luke 18:31, but it's coming back again in Luke 19, verses 11 and 28, when he finally does arrive in Jerusalem with the triumphal entry on, uh, on Palm Monday. So he's been on the way for several months, but this event marks his final approach. This is his final approach to the crucifixion. We are within a month, maybe within two weeks, maybe even within a week. Uh, very quickly, we have just uh, episodes 37, 38, 39, 40, 41, 42. Six more episodes wraps this up. 
with the, uh, the plot to kill Lazarus, the return to the home of Mary and Martha. I mean, we are that close to the Passion Week. And uh, when I say two weeks to a month out, that's generous. It may be a week before the Passion Week. This could be the, um, just one week before he dies on the cross. So uh, this is the final approach to the crucifixion. Jesus led the way to the amazement and fear of the twelve and the other disciples. The record that we have in Mark 10 highlights their amazement and highlights their fear. But Jesus is leading the way. And I have this picture in my mind of Jesus walking down the road and the disciples are maybe 30 feet behind him. And then another 30 feet or 100 feet further back is more of the crowds that they can't believe. See, they're just shocked. He's going to Jerusalem. They want him dead. Doesn't doesn't he know that they're going to put him to death? And uh, and Jesus is just as shocked, saying, uh, Yes, I know they're going to put me to death. Did you not know I told you they're going to put me to death? (laughs) Of course I know. And uh, he's going to use this as the opportunity. And he calls them aside. Every gospel record is clear that the 12 are selected for personal instruction. The crowds don't get this class, but the 12 do. All right. The 12 were selected for personal instruction on the coming Passover events. He... uh, Every year, year after year, he'd go up to Jerusalem for the Passover until last year. Last year, instead of going to Jerusalem, he crossed the Sea of Galilee, went up to a a mountain, and he fed 5,000 up there in in Gentile territory. He didn't even go to Jerusalem for that Passover, which is what led to all the speculation uh, in the fall whether he was going to show up for the Feast of uh, Trumpets or not, whether he was going to show up for the Feast of Booths. And so um, uh, of all the Passovers that we track in the Gospel record, and I think we can track... Uh, including the one in John chapter 5, which is not, the word Passover doesn't appear in that chapter, but I accept that it is a Passover feast there. It just says feast in that chapter. If you accept that's a Passover, then you got three and a half years of public ministry for Jesus Christ. And he made them all except for last year's. He's coming this year and he's coming because this is the time. This is the appointed time for him to be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All right. And as we just read here in Luke 18:31, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the son of man will be accomplished. Scripture will be fulfilled. God wrote it. It's going to happen. The statement of it is written testifies to the reliability of what God has placed in his scripture. So all prophetic revelation concerning the son of man will be accomplished. Okay, all prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, we have to do some work with this. We have to understand that everything means everything. All right. And so the things that we see accomplished in the Passion Week is everything that was supposed to be accomplished in the Passion Week. But what what gets left unaccomplished? What does not happen following the Passion Week? See, they were expecting it to. The disciples finally, after they put him through death, burial, resurrection, ascension, or not ascension, but when he finally is raised again, they, and they're just beside themselves, they said, Lord, now is it the time that you're restoring the kingdom. They were expecting the, the second advent prophecies to be fulfilled as well. Okay? And that's why it takes work on our part. We're the ones that are between the advents. We're the ones that, uh, that they didn't have a clue about in the Old Testament times. All things will be accomplished. And that is uh, that we've got to understand that. It's part of what helps us to identify the uh, parenthetical nature of the church age. As it says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And so that's everything First Advent. That's everything Second Advent. Okay? Are going to be accomplished. And don't allow yourself to be distracted by the, the situation where now 2,000 years have gone by. Okay? Don't allow yourself to be confused with that because on the day of Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit descended and we have a break. We have a parenthesis. But that's going to that's gonna change when the rapture of the church takes the bride out of here. And then again, we're back to dealing with Israel again. And we're going to see second advent fulfilled, including all of the judgment, all of the wrath, all of the things that were spoken of concerning the Son of Man must be fulfilled. So... If all prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, that means everything the Bible talks about for suffering has to be accomplished. Okay? And last week we took the time to take you through Daniel 9, verses 25 through 27, that after the 69th week, Messiah the Prince will be cut off and have nothing. 
that we have a calendar there. All right. So and I know we went through it last week. Let me just grab it one quick time here tonight or this morning. Daniel chapter nine. And if you want more on this, I would encourage you to go get it out of the Daniel notebook or take it out of the through the Bible notebook. It's, it's in both places. But just look at it yourself one more time. Daniel chapter nine. And understand that uh, this is with response to Daniel's prayer. And Daniel was concerned about his people. Daniel 9.24 says, Seventy sevens have been decreed for your people and your holy city. All right. Who are Daniel's people? I'm going to do a little interactive with you this morning, like I do in ministry workshop on Sunday evenings. Okay. Daniel's people were the Jews. Okay, this is a prophecy that applies to Israel, applies to the Jewish people, has nothing to do with the church. The church is not Daniel's people. Daniel is not part of the church. For your people and your holy city. Who was Daniel's holy city? What was that? That was Jerusalem. That was Israel's holy city. What's the church's holy city? Do we have a holy city? Okay, is it Rome like the Catholics say? Is it Austin? Perish the thought. Is it what is the holy city for the church? We don't have one on this earth. In fact, our citizenship isn't even on this earth. We have a city, but it's in heaven and uh, has nothing to do with the message of what's spoken of here. So this is a, a prophecy related to Israel, and it's a calendar for Israel to follow. It includes 70 sevens, or it's translated 70 weeks, and there are periods of seven years is what they are. Seven 360-day years, if you want the full story on that, I would just refer you to the notes in the Daniel notebook to get all that information. So you are, then verse 25, you are to know and distinguish, discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven and 62. So what does seven and 62 add up to? It adds up to 69. It leaves you one week short, doesn't it? Okay. Seven and 62 takes you through 69 out of these 70 weeks. And uh, that's, that's vital to understand. And you'll notice when it comes to Messiah the Prince, that it's from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven and 62. Then after the 62, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. After the 62. And I would encourage you to put some thought into that and consider the fact that it's not during the 70th week, but it's after the 69th week, okay? And there's a reason why it's phrased that way. It would be like talking about after Tuesday and then having a whole lot of things done and then saying, okay, now starting on Wednesday, you understand the difference? This verse doesn't say during the 70th week. It says after the 62nd, which is after the 7th, okay? You don't get to that 70th week until verse 27. Look at that. In verse 27, then, the prince who is to come will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There, we finally see the 70th week. We don't see that 70th week until verse 27. Now, I'm taking the time to walk you through this like we did last week. You say, why do you keep repeating this? Well, because I I keep seeing uh, frowns. (laughs) All right. I'm just walking you through. Let Let you look at it with your own eyes. Let you put your finger there and see. Do you see that one week in verse 27? Do you see that 7 and 62 adds up to 69? Do you see that there's a re- that, that this passage is telling us an awful lot about what happens after week 69, but before week 70? That's key. This is what this passage is doing to teach us that there is a gap. There is a delay of time. There is a postponement of week 70. Week 70 doesn't happen right away. That there are things that have to happen in between week 69 and week 70. And they're described here, some of them anyway including the execution of Jesus Christ. Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Cut off there is, a, is an execution term. And he is, in fact, under capital punishment, executed by the political authorities. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So not only do we see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ there, 33 A.D., But we also see the destruction of Jerusalem in the same verse, 70 A.D. Do you see that there? You following with me here in verse 26? The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's 33 A.D. That's the cross. The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's the Roman general Titus. Later he becomes emperor. 
That's 70 A.D. Right there in the same verse. 37 years go by. And then it says its end will come with a flood. You can take that as also 70 A.D. But then you have even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. This goes this gives you a, a sweeping panorama that takes you not just from first century, but on into end times. Then it's not until verse 27. He, the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering on the wings of abomination will come one who makes desolate. So we, we have the description here of the 70th week of Daniel, that final week, that seven year period of time in which halfway through. The, the treaty is betrayed and halfway through he puts an end to the sacrifices. You go elsewhere and you find out that it's because he's going to put himself in the temple and he's going to demand his own worship and he's going to take away the, the, uh, the worship of the Lord out of the temple and demand his own worship in the temple. And there's other passages that go through with this. But this is just simply an outline that shows us the calendar. And to the very day, these 69 periods of seven years, these 69 periods of seven 360 day years comes to an end precisely on Monday, April 30th, 33 AD. It comes to an end when Jesus Christ enters into Jerusalem on Palm Monday. You probably call it Palm Sunday in your church tradition. That's all right. Uh, on Monday, if you have it on Sunday, then you just have a missing Wednesday is all you end up with. You can't account for the Wednesday in the Passion Week if you insist on Palm Sunday. But if you are relaxed about Palm Monday, then you don't have a missing Wednesday. In your Passion Week, okay? And, it, it, you know, I keep asking all these Catholics and other folks that want to truly insist on Palm Sunday. It's, okay, well, then what was Jesus doing on that missing Wednesday? <laughs> you know? Anyway, um, we have a pretty clear calendar throughout the Passion Week, and we'll be outlining that for you uh, from Palm Monday through Good Friday when he goes to the cross. So all prophetic revelation concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, can the Jewish people possibly have a frame of reference to understand the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow? They cannot. And this is what we spent the time Sunday night dealing with. So join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. I won't have you turn to 2 Peter like I mistakenly did Sunday night. 1 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this. Again, with your own eyes. Just look at the verse. 1 Peter 1.10. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. What do you think that's about? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay? Quit looking at that. That screen has nothing to do with what I'm showing you right now. I'm in 1 Peter 1.10. 1 Peter 1.10. 1 Peter 1, 10. As to this salvation, and that's verses 1 through 9. I'm not going to read all that. But the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. In other words, Old Testament prophets. Guys like Daniel. Okay? Guys like Jesus. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Okay, recognize that. Sufferings of Christ, that's first advent. Glories to follow, that's second advent. Okay, make sense? See how that works? Because he didn't come to be glorified in first advent. He came to, to die. He came to suffer. He came to, to be our substitute, to die on the cross for our sins. Uh, the disciples didn't like that, right? They wanted him to conquer. They wanted him to reign. They want the glories. But no, it required the sufferings of Christ first. The cross has to precede the crown, okay? Now, the idea there, though, that we have two messages, and how do we reconcile them? How do we reconcile them? If we've got, if we've got prophecies pertaining to the suffering and prophecies pertaining to the glory, how do we combine those? How do we reconcile those? How do they fit how do they fit? Okay. And this is what comes back to what Jesus is telling his disciples in, in, Luke, in our passage today, in Luke 18, 31. He's showing them that all things spoken by the prophets concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. All right. That's everything must be accomplished. And that includes first advent and second advent must be accomplished. 
But now here's how you resolve it. They were uh, seeking to know what person or time. So what's the solution then? Do we have two Christs or do we have two times? Do we have two times? And now we know, of course, that there are two times. That's the first advent and a second advent. So it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In other words, it was never designed for the church, to under, for, for Israel, to understand the totality of first advent, second advent. It was, not, uh, it was reserved for the church, you in this passage. The church would be the ones that were, were designed and equipped and blessed with the scriptures to rightly divide the word of truth between first advent and second advent. Because here we are. We're in between. We have the blessings to look back at first advent and see them all fulfilled. And to look forward to second advent, knowing with faith and confidence that all things the prophets wrote concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. We're the ones that have the perspective to see hindsight looking back to first advent and foresight looking forward to second advent. Okay? So this is uh, why we can be relaxed about Luke 18 and, and Jesus saying that all things... The prophets wrote concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. Well, from his perspective, that's true. They must be accomplished. And uh, does he know anything? Is he referencing anything related to the church or or referencing the the, the 2,000-year gap in between? No, not referencing any of that. Not referencing any of that at all. Okay. Anyway, that's just a, a side trip based on what I think the... Lord took us through on Sunday that I thought was fruitful for the, the ministry workshop crowd. And then it, uh, it hit me as I was driving home that night that it would, it would fit in well here also for, uh, for this class to recognize that it, the things in the prophets that were written concerning the, the Son of Man, the, the Messiah, the Christ, um, they, in Israel, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the total picture to understand first advent versus second advent, not like we do today. Because we're in between the two advents. We're positioned and the mystery doctrine is unfolded to, to explain this to us. All right. So that was uh, the issue there. All right. So what, is, what happens next? Well, Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. Where else would you expect the Christ to be crucified but Jerusalem? We're going up to Jerusalem where all the wrath is going to be poured out. Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. Jerusalem is where the, the other prophets were put to death in the Old Testament. Why would the Christ be, uh, be murdered anywhere else? There's no better place, no more fitting place, no more appropriate place for the Son of Man um, because all of the foreshadowing prophets, that's where they were put to death. All right? You know, I was joking last week, but think about it. Uh, the prophets couldn't, you couldn't kill a prophet in Babylon. Right? A fire furnace wouldn't do it. A lion's den wouldn't do it. You couldn't kill a prophet down in Egypt. All of the, all the magicians and sorcerers that were doing battle with Moses, there's no way that, that they were going to put him to death in Egypt. But in Jerusalem, where God's holiness dwells, is where he, in permissive will, allowed for his messengers to be put to death. And I find that uh, to be noteworthy. So Jerusalem is the scene of the crime. The Son of Man is going to be doubly Betrayed, doubly betrayed. And for this, let's turn over to uh, Matthew, Matthew 20. Let's look at the record there. Two betrayals. The verb is paradidomy. And if you want to do, we're not going to do a word study on it, but you can pursue that if you so desire. P-A-R-A-D-I-D-O-M-I, number 3860. But to be betrayed means you're being handed over, handed over. And Jesus is being handed over for the nefarious purposes of his death. This is the betrayal. And it's going to happen twice, actually, because he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And this is their accountability. This is their culpability. They even very arrogantly and defiantly said, His blood be on our head and on our children. See? But then he was also handed over to the Romans, to the Gentiles. And this shows the Gentile accountability. And the double accountability is important, of course. Everyone is guilty. It's like the issue with respect to our guilt in terms of sin. Uh, Gentiles are under sin. Jews are under sin. What's the conclusion? All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That everyone needs the the salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so... um, 
There's no place for the Gentile uh, anti-Semitism or hatred against the Jewish people. Uh, all of the, the centuries of uh, Catholic and other approaches to hating the Jewish people, referencing them as, as Christ killers and all the other wickedness is just evil. Jews and Gentiles both had a hand in putting our Savior to death. And, and although uh, it's bad that they did so, I'm glad that they did so. Uh, in the sense that I'm thankful that he went to the cross and accomplished my redemption. So, um, you know, woe be to the ones who did it. But uh, thanks be to God that they did do it, uh, that, uh, that, they were de- that, they were, that they delivered him over according to the predetermined plan of God the Father. And we understand that as well. All right. And here's what he says has to happen. To be mocked, mistreated, spit upon, scourged, killed, and crucified. And this is nothing new. The prophets have been talking about this for a thousand years and longer. All right? I think even to the seed of the woman promise that, that he will be bruised on his heel. Does that not speak of an injury? Does not, you know, it's, not, it's not the fatal injury that the serpent will have. The serpent will be bruised on the head. But the seed of the woman will be bruised on the heel. There will be hurt. There will be injury. That uh, that will come. The suffering will happen as it pertains to the Messiah. So let's uh, see it in Isaiah 53 and then Psalm 22. And you ought to be familiar with these. It's fascinating how these are not known by Jewish people. The typical Jewish person doesn't even know this is in his Bible. Because it's not spoken about. It's not written about. It's not featured in any synagogue readings. It's not featured in, in uh, any of their uh, uh, services. But Isaiah 53, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Isn't that something? <laughs> Humility. The childhood of our Savior, the virgin birth and the, the humble situation of the being born in a manger and growing up and the vulnerability of, of an infant that uh, all the Gentiles want to put to death. And like a root out of parts ground. How long do those last? He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. I think that's a big mark of a false prophet, of a false Christ. You know, are they charismatic? Do they, do they glean a following based on their appearance or their charisma or their speaking ability or how, you know, they read a teleprompter or, th- you know, things of that nature? Our Savior, that's not how he built his following. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't trying to, to gather crowds because he was so uh, awesome in personal appearance. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. In earthly terms, there was nothing that would attract you to him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So here we start to see that he was sacrificial in his approach, that he started to take upon himself things that belong to us instead of him. And you think, well, didn't he have enough of his own sorrows? Why is he taking ours on top of his own? And why is God smiting him? But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. We see the the suffering of our Savior right here. Again, 700 years before it happened. Piercing. The language of piercing. The language of crucifixion. Crushing. The language of uh, the injury. Like the serpent's head is crushed. The seed of the woman's heel is crushed. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Universal atonement. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whose sins are not placed on Jesus Christ? Well, who's a sinner? All of us. Who, uh, who's gone astray? All of us. Who's gone his own way? Each of us. And so whose uh, sins fall on him? All of us. 
The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearer, so he did not open his mouth. It'll be interesting. We're going to see at the different trials how he stays silent, how they try to goad him, they try to prompt him, the high priest especially, and he'll give them no answer. Uh, only at the point where they put him under an oath to Yahweh, I abjure you in the name of the Lord, only then will he speak. I think he's forced to by virtue of the oath and calling upon the name of, of the Lord there. Uh, he will give an answer to uh, Pilate. But um, the silence before the high priest is, is fulfilled here. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for the, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, cut off. Isn't that what Daniel said? Messiah the prince will be cut off and have nothing. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Who was supposed to be on the cross? Me, you, all of us. Yeah. His grave was assigned with wicked men. You know, he was in between two sinners and hung there on that cross. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea shows up and donates the, uh, the brand new burial chamber. Anoints him with all the costly oils. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. You think, well, this had to have been written after first century, right? <laughs> How did they write this before it actually happened? But the, see, our, our God is a God that reveals things ahead of time. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. This is his good pleasure. If he would render himself a guilt offering. He was the priest, but he was also the offering. And he offered himself to the Father. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. God the Father is satisfied when God the Son accepts all the wrath that the Father can pour out. The anguish of his soul. Satisfaction. The propitiation, by the way, answers the question for propitiation. Satisfaction. The Father is satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So all of this was spoken about. All of this was mentioned. And if Jesus, Peter wants to say, oh, no, 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 far be it from thee. This shall never happen. But what is Jesus saying? This has to happen. Get behind me, Satan. This has to. If this doesn't happen, then God's a liar. Scripture is broken. A scripture cannot be broken. Not one jot, not one tittle can be broken. And so everything that's spoken of here in Isaiah 53 has to happen. And Jesus is going to fulfill it all on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say it's powerful. Absolutely powerful. This is how Arnold Fruchtenbaum got saved, by the way. Uh, you know, a, a, a Christian evangelist started showing him verses in his own Bible about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And, and Arnold was furious, said, that's not my Bible, that's, those are verses from your Bible. And he said, no, no, this is from your Bible. And Arnold said, you're lying. So he was just very patient, very kind, said, all right. It was a Monday morning. Wrote down a list of passages, a whole string of them, including this and several others. Psalm 22 will be there next. And said, take these home with you. In your own Bible, look them up. <laughs> All right. Next Monday, we'll talk again. And uh, next Monday, Arnold came back and just broken. Said, that's all in my Bible. You didn't make any of that up. <laughs> now, how, how come my Bible has all this and, and my teachers never teach me any of this, but it's in my Bible and it agrees with your Bible. How do these two Bibles come together? What he's trying to figure out was Old Testament, New Testament, Jewish scripture, Christian scripture. Why is this? See, and as soon as he said, wait a minute, this is in my Bible. This has to be, he knew that it wasn't just simply the opinions of whoever. And that's how he got saved. Crucified, Psalm 22. This is even older than Isaiah. Psalm 22 is uh, David, a thousand years before Christ. You can also look at Psalm 61 and you can find some other glimmers in Psalm 41 and other passages. But this one's comprehensive. 
And see, if Jesus does not go to the cross, if He runs, if He defies the will of the Father, if He pursues His own selfishness, then here's another scripture that's going to be broken. Here's another prophecy that can't be fulfilled. And it's necessary that all things spoken of by the prophets concerning the Son of Man must be accomplished. They have to be because our God's a God of truth. There is no alternative. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? These were the words of Christ on the cross. Was it just a lucky guess on David's part? <laughs> right? Jesus was reciting Psalm 22. And uh, we only have a snippet of it uh, cited in the gospel records. My personal theory, my belief, I think he cited the whole thing. I think Jesus recited all of Psalm 22 from memory. That's what sustained him on the cross. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I have no rest. And of course, he was there both day and night because the darkness fell. And shrouded him in night, shrouded him in darkness for the three hours of wrath-bearing. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. God never let down his own people. He never let down Israel. Is he going to let down his beloved son? Of course not. But I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. That's what Isaiah was talking about, right? Who's going to follow this guy? He's a loser. Okay? All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. And this gets fulfilled too. The Roman soldiers, the Pharisees, the Jews, the onlookers, they're mocking, they're taunting, saying, you know, here Jesus kept talking about his father in heaven. And well, does the father love you or not? Is he going to get you off that cross? Yes, the father loves him. But the father also so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And they, they, they take the love of the father and they use it to mock and they don't even understand. It's the love of the father that's saving them. Let him rescue him. Let him rescue him because he like And it's... So much doctrine in this. Let him rescue him. Let him save him. He's on the cross and he's the only one who doesn't need to be saved. He's on the cross so that we can be saved. Because he delights in him. And we saw the role of Jesus Christ as the pinnacle of, of any human being that has ever or could ever please God the Father in the doctrine of pleasing God. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. That's true of both David and Jesus. Be not uh, far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bowls have surrounded me. Strong bowls of Bashan have encircled me. And this is the angelic conflict component to who put him on the cross. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you'll lay me in the dust of death. You know, you think the scourging was rough? The physical beating that he took? I don't think it was anything compared to the angelic conflict that he had started even the night before the scourging started. He was wrestling with the Father in prayer. He was sweating great drops of blood before a single whip ever touched his hide. And it's the angelic conflict, the mental attitude battle, battles in his soul. All the demonic whisperings, every little discouragement every little demonic slander that could be whispered into his ears and he's being tested with every last bit of it dogs have surrounded me a band of evildoers has encompassed me they pierced my hands and my feet i can count all my bones they look they stared at me piercing hands and feet it's, it's so extraordinary that david composes this again under verbal inspiration of scripture of course the holy spirit impels him to do this but why would david a thousand years before christ why would david write this what was his experience in a dream or in a vision or in some kind of a in some kind of a prophetic way why would he be writing this in the first person they pierced my hands and my feet why would david even have a concept of that crucifixion wasn't even invented in david's lifetime 
I believe that in the prophetic ecstasy of the vision that God actually brought him forward in time, actually put him on the cross as Jesus hung on the cross. That in vision now, not literally, of course, but in vision, David viewed the cross from the first person perspective a thousand years before it happened. And David hung there and witnessed everything that Jesus would witness. They pierced my hands and my feet. You know, I've had some bad dreams before. <laughs> but you know, here's the dream. You don't wake up from this dream. I mean, this is a, a, an ecstatic spiritual vision, a, a prophetic revelation that that's David is thrust into the middle of this. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I love that. Again, a thousand years before it happens, and it's fulfilled. And it seems to be, does this seem to be contradictory? You say, well, which is it? Are they going to divide them up? Or are they going to cast lots? What are they going to do? And the truth is, they do both. That for the outer garments, for, the, for certain garments, they, they just divide them up, and you take this, you take that, we, we divvy it up. But for the seamless robe garment, for that one uh, sing, uh, seamless single woven piece, that, that one, that's the one they cast lots for. So they're both true. This is a, a passage that appears to be um, internally self-contradictory, but God in his wisdom spells it out that way so that when both sides are fulfilled, literally, perfectly, with hindsight, we can go, aha, they're both true. Isn't that great? It's awesome the way the Father does that. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Now, there is going to be a deliverance, but it's not going to be a physical deliverance to get him off the cross. But it's going to be the spiritual deliverance of his soul. He who knew no sin is going to be made sin. He who had never been spiritually dead is going to become spiritually dead. And as a spiritually dead mortal human being, where might he expect to go when he physically dies? The Father will not abandon his soul to Sheol. He will not uh, abandon his Holy One to undergo decay. We're going to see that uh, even though he is spiritually dead, he's going to have that spiritual life restored. He will not be on the torment side of that great gulf in Abraham, you know, across from Abraham's bosom. He'll be on the comfort side. He'll be on the Abraham's bosom side when he descends to Sheol. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What's he doing that for? Why? What business does he have making these plans, future plans about what he's going to do? You see the faith that's communicated here? He's just spent 21 verses describing his torture, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death. But he is so confident that the Father is hearing his prayers, providing an answer. He knows that there's another side. And he's already making plans for what he's going to do when this unpleasant business is done. Right? Here's what I'm going to do when the cross is over with. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. What confidence. What faith. So, you know, when this is done with, here's what I'm going to do. That's the assurance of knowing that prayers are heard, prayers are answered, and the Father's going to unfold those answers in the perfection of his timing. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. This is his positive anticipation for answered prayer. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who hear him. Now, which great assembly is this? I think this goes back now to the angelic realm as well. The assembly in heaven. Well, all things spoken of by the prophets must be fulfilled. The last thing we got to deal with is the resurrection. This has to happen too on the third day. On the third day. The final Passover event is the resurrection. It's described in all three Gospels. Matthew 20, verse 19. Mark 10, verse 34. Luke 18, 33. And as we look at it, we're left with a question. 
It has to happen. So Matthew 20, let me just ask you if this bugs you. Maybe it doesn't bug you, in which case we're, we're done early. But if it bugs you, then we'll fix it so it doesn't bug you anymore. And that'll take about 15 minutes here. Matthew 20 and verse 19. Um, they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Okay? Happy ending. On the third day, he will be raised up. Luke, skipping Mark for the moment. Luke 18.33. After they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. All right, on the third day. On the third day. But in Mark 10, 34, they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Three days later. Now, does that mean on the third day or after three days? Three days later. And here's what we're going to break down for you. This is where uh, some folks find or they think they find a um, they think they find a contradiction. Because there's an expression after three days. Okay? So if you want to spell these out, you can spell them out in, in the subpoints A, B, C, and D. The most common one is on the third day. So subpoint A, just the expression on the third day. On the third day. And we have it, Matthew, uh, Luke, repeatedly, Acts 10, 40, 1 Corinthians 15, 4. It is the overwhelmingly most frequent expression is on the third day. Starting with Matthew 16, 21, with the, uh, the uh, message to Peter there. Matthew 17:23, Matthew 20:19, that's our passage today. Matthew 27:64, when it actually happens. Okay? Luke 9:22, Luke 18:33, that's our passage today. Luke 24, verse 7, verse 21, verse 46, all in that chapter where it actually happens. Acts 10:40, talking about it afterwards, looking back in Acts chapter 10, the ministry of Cornelius there. On the third day is when he rose from the dead. And of course, 1 Corinthians 15:4, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then we have this phrase "in three days" that's featured in John chapter two when he he's touring the temple and he says, "Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it again." In three days. And I don't think we have any issue with the phrase "in three days" in our mind anyway. That's John 2, verses 19 through 22. The expression in three days is identical to on the third day. We don't have any struggle with that. But if we use the preposition after, and we think after three days, then that starts to bother us. Because in our way of thinking, after three days is on the fourth day. And we have a hard time equating after three days with on the third day. It doesn't flow for us. It's not in our way of thinking but it is very hebrew way of thinking and so we want to understand it but that's the expression that's found in matthew 27 63 mark 8 31 mark 9 31 and mark 10 34 so sub point c is the term after three days including matthew 27 63 mark 8 31 mark 9 31 mark 10 34 notice it's a expression that's more common to mark Three uses there in Mark. But then the one that really throws people for fits is the story about, the, the, uh, about Jonah. And as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so too will the Son of Man be in the earth, in the grave, three days and three nights, Matthew twelve forty. And this is where people, and usually it's nitpickers or Bible haters or skeptics or folks, that they want to say, well, see here, the Bible's a contradiction. Uh, it's talking about three days and three nights and so or after three days so he can't be raised until the fourth day but then these other verses say on the third day and they just they they, they really pick nits and and there's no reason to really all of these terms are equivalent expressions they're all equivalent expressions including the ones that we don't think about uh three days and three nights we have a hard time reconciling that but uh, the, the hebrews did not 
and I'll show you that in a moment. First of all, let me just say related to these verses, the Matthew 27 reference is interesting because you have verse 63 and verse 64 back to back. You see Matthew 27:63 there under point C and Matthew 27:64 under point A. They're in back-to-back verses. And so you have them there in an immediate context in an equivalent way. Matthew 27 and it says um, This is when the Pharisees are when the yeah, they're trying to get guards assigned. And they said, "Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after 3 days I am to rise again." Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead and the deception will be worse than the first. So why don't they want guards until the fourth day? Why do they equate after three days to on the third day? Because that's the way they thought. That's how they handled their reckoning of days. Any part of a day was considered a whole day. Any part of a night was considered a whole day and night. See, there was evening and there was morning one day. So any part of a night was also included the entirety of that night and that day. That's how you can be crucified on a Friday, rise on a Sunday. And in Jewish thinking, have been in the ground three days and three nights. All right. So in those back-to-back verses, we see the equivalence of after three days and until the third day. Likewise, look at all these references there in Mark. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, Mark 10.34. They all have reference to after three days, and yet in their parallels, the parallels in Matthew and Luke are all on the third day. And I put a tiny little A. Can you see that in the back row maybe? The little tiny A next to Mark 8.31. That shows you that it's a parallel text to Matthew 16:21 and Luke 9:22. I went ahead and just matched all those up with little letter A's after their verse numbers. And then the little B that we have next to Mark 9:31 that shows you the parallel text is Mark 7, is Matthew 17:23 and um, and there is no Luke equivalent there. And then Mark 10:34 has a little C next to it, so that shows you. The uh, parallel in Matthew is Matthew 20:19, and uh, the parallel in Luke is uh, Luke 18:33, the passage we're studying today. So they're equivalent phrases, and we can relax about it. In a Jewish way of thinking, if he says after three days, what do you, it, it's functionally the same as saying on the third day. Okay, we might not do that in our way of thinking. I might talk about after three days, which means on the fourth day at the earliest. Right? Is that how you do it in Texas? Okay. My wife and I get in these arguments too as far as what's the difference between this Sunday and next Sunday. Okay? Because this Sunday is this Sunday. In other words, one that's coming up now just four more days. This Sunday. Okay? Not the one that we just had in the, in three days ago. That was this past Sunday. Okay? But this Sunday is going to happen in four days. Next Sunday is in 11 days. Next Sunday is the Sunday after this Sunday, right? But some of you may not like that. I found that out. My wife doesn't like that. She thinks that in four days from now, that's next Sunday. Ethel thinks that, you think next Sunday is four days from now? No, that's this Sunday. This Sunday. If I tell you we're having an ice cream social this Sunday then four days from now, you better be showing up with ice cream. Because next Sunday, all right, even with this illustration, you observe that there's a, a little bit of a loose reckoning that human beings have when we, <laughs> when we communicate certain things. All right. There is a tremendous development on this by Harold Honer, and I would recommend this. Harold W. Honer. He's with the Lord now. He died... Uh, just a few months ago, Harold W. Honer, H-O-E-H-N-E-R. And at Amazon or ChristianBook.com, you can get the book form of this. It originally appeared in the mid-70s in a series of, of journal articles. Uh, but then they, they combined that whole series into a comprehensive book. It's called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. 
and is the best thing outside of the Bible you'll ever spend money on. Okay? Um, it, is, it is outstanding for synchronizing the Passion Week, the year of the crucifixion, the birth of Christ, everything related to Jesus Christ's first advent. And he shows some other Old Testament support for the interchangeability of these expressions. And um, this, this would probably be worth looking at as well if we, I don't know, got four minutes left. Uh, we could, I suppose we could take one more Wednesday to do this. But in Genesis 42, verses 17 and 18, we got uh, an interchangeability of expressions there. I save this for next week because then we got point five as well. well. We'll get one more week out of this. All right. Um, what did I say last week? We're going to cover <laughs> episode 36. We're going to be a single, a single Wednesday, wasn't it? And we're going to end up with a third one next week. That's all right. Because I do want to talk about why the disciples didn't grasp what he was teaching them. Why was it withheld from them? Why did he not let them learn? Does he not want us to learn? Why did he hinder their learning? Is he the author of confusion? Why, why is this? So that's, gonna, that's more than a couple of uh, minutes here can fairly do. Let me show you the, the Honer article. And this relates to why some people don't accept the Friday crucifixion. Um, they don't like the Friday crucifixion because they want to have three days and three nights in the grave like Jonah had three days and three nights. Um, so he says, uh, the critique of the Friday view, the one problem that is proposed against the Friday view is Matthew 12:40, that he would be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Admittedly, this is the most difficult verse for those who hold to the Friday view, but it's not as formidable as first appearance. One must first examine all the evidence at hand. And he's going to walk you through New Testament evidence, like we did, Old Testament evidence, like we'll do next week, and then the rabbinic evidence. He'll show you three lines of evidence. And then uh, he talks about the most frequent reference to Jesus' resurrection is to have occurred on the third day, not on the fourth day. And there's a long string of scriptures like I gave you in your subpoints. Uh, then there's the expression in three days, not on the fourth day. And then there are four passages in which Christ's resurrection is occurs after three days. And those are the ones that, that we looked at also. But we don't have any problems with those as well because of the parallel text. And he goes through and discusses that. Then you go back to Old Testament way of thinking. Then you look at rabbinic literature. What is the Jewish mindset and how it relates to days? How do you combine days or how do you reference a period of time? And so here we see, and this is an example I'm going to give you next week. Um, in Genesis 42:17, Joseph incarcerated his brothers for three days. That's what it says. It says he put them all together in prison for three days. Right? But what's the next verse say? Joseph said to them, on the third day, do this and live, for I fear God. And then he's going to release uh, all but one of them and send them back to Canaan. So there's an equivalent right there in back-to-back -back verses where three days finds its resolution on the third day. So that's not any different than Jesus Christ, who's in the grave for three days, but who rises on the third day. It's just, it's, it's an equivalent aspect. Also, 1 Kings chapter 20 and verse 29. Uh, they camped over against the other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle was joined. And the sons of Israel killed the Arameans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. So there, now that's not three, that's seven, but it's still the principle that if it was four, seven days, but on the seventh day, the uh, resolution of the matter takes place, then then we're okay with it. We can still define the whole thing as four, seven days. Make sense? So it's very Jewish in the, in the sense that uh, something can happen on that ultimate day and it still counts as the totality of the duration, including that ultimate day. It's inclusive uh, rather than exclusive in the sequential reckoning. That's 1 Kings 20, 29. Then 2 uh, Chronicles 10, 5. He said, return to me again in three days. So the people departed. And then uh, he glanced down to verse 12. And it's uh, the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed. He said, go away for three days. They came back on the third day. They didn't come back on the fourth day. They came back on the third day. Because they understood that on the third day was equal to in three days. 
Okay? So if, if that's uh, an issue that we don't like because we say go away for three days then, and you plan on coming back on day four, then uh, you're a day late in Jewish thinking. <laughs> okay? And uh, last one. Let me just give you the last one here. We'll, we'll pick this up again next week. Um, Esther. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast the same way, and thus I will go into the king, which is according to the law. Uh, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther commanded him. Now it came about on the third day. Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court. You say, Esther, what are you doing? You're a day early. No. She told them, fast for three days, and on the third day, that's the culmination of what of the duration that was designated so anyway this is the uh, old testament consistency with the new testament jesus who is going to be in the grave for three days and rise on the third day nothing contradictory about that at all all right father thank you for your truth for your faithfulness for your mercy love and grace we thank you in jesus christ's name amen